Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Keith Whittington, an Associate Professor of Politics in the Department here at Princeton and the Acting Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. And I am pleased to present to you the last Alpheus T. Mason Lecture in Constitutional Law and Political Thought for this academic year. Alpheus Mason was for many years a distinguished professor in the Department of Politics and one of the country's leading experts in constitutional law, American political thought, and the Supreme Court, and was the author of extraordinary biographies of several Supreme Court justices. I am particularly pleased to note that his daughter, uh, Louise uh, Mary Bachador, and uh, his granddaughter, Carrie Dufresne, are with us today, uh, which is a special treat. Uh, the Mason series is made possible by the generous support of John P. Hansel, the class of 1948, and a former, former student of Professor Mason's. Um, today, uh, we have uh, presenting the Alpheus Mason Lecture, uh, Professor Hadley Arcus, who is the Edward N. Nye Professor of Jurisprudence in American Institutions at Amherst College. Uh, Professor Arcus has been a member of the Amherst College faculty since 1966, and he was previously the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Jurisprudence uh, before uh, rising to the Edward Nye Professorship. Uh, his most recent book, is Natural Rights and the Right to Choose, which was published by Cambridge University Press in September of 2002. Uh, we're always pleased to have Professor Arcus here with the Masson Program and to, and to uh, lecture uh, for us, and I am looking forward to his lecture today, which will be on the topic of On the Reading of Cases, the Reasoning We Have Forgotten, and the Law We Have Lost. Professor Arcus. Thanks, Keith. You know, I, too, have been to Arcadia. I, too, have taught at Princeton. Um, I want to thank you all for carving out the time to come out today to, to hear me. And I'm uh, especially touched by old friends who've been here and, and protected me against hostile audiences in the past. And I'm grateful for the presence of my former students at Princeton. Uh, the students, my students have been just remarkably devoted. They still stay in touch with, with emails. And they seem anxious to get together whenever, whenever I get back. Uh, but we couldn't have known when we set a date for this lecture that we would be at this time engulfed by a certain sadness of deaths uh, distant and far. Uh, with the death of John Paul II and near at hand the um, death just a few days ago of our dear friend Kerry McWilliams, <clears throat> one of the great <clears throat> teachers of political theory in the country and the father of our beloved Susan McWilliams here. And of course, with the crisis over Terry Schiavo, a crisis that illuminated um, either corruption or witlessness or an abject want of nerve on the part of large segments of the political class. In the corruption of judgment, in the malfeasance of Judge Greer, we saw nothing novel just as there was nothing novel in the fact of people acting under color of law, treating people within their power with a certain flippancy as they take decisions that deprive others of their liberties and, and their lives. Nothing in that was novel. But what was quite revealing of the situation um, was that federal judges who routinely give restraining orders to keep people from cleaning out inventories of goods. Judge Spritzo in New York told me just yesterday, I just gave a temporary restraining order to keep people from selling more counterfeit Spider-Man paraphernalia. Judges who can routinely give restraining orders to keep the status quo in questions of property rights 
uh, would not bother to issue a restraining order for any number of, uh, for, for the sake of preserving the life of an innocent woman when there was a serious danger that her condition had been misrepresented, that the so-called remedy, inaptly chosen by her guardian, who himself was afflicted with a conflict of interest, and they refused to grant a restraining order when a coordinate branch of the government invited the judges to stop the action, allow the case to be examined de novo, and so firm was the grip of the judges. So persuaded were they now that the law was the monopoly of the judges, that the political officers in this country had no, no part to play in the rendering of justice, that they revealed something about the state of the judiciary in our own time. Now, what I propose to put before you today will have to appear far tamer than the lessons I, that have been administered to us over the last few weeks. And yet I think it touches the same ground, and I hope it will bring forth some things that may be new to you. But if you'll permit me one other prelude, and I'm afraid you're gonna have to, I'm in charge here. I've uh, preserved over the years, to the massive discomfort of my wife, an interest in Henry James. And Henry James, you remember, would wind, he'd have these long, winding sentences where you couldn't tell what was being said until the very last word fell into place. I'm going to do one for you now, and you will not hear the last word. You would not hear the last word even if you were next to me, so I'll repeat it. It's from a piece called The Abasement of the Northmores. And the narrator is saying of Lord Northmore that he made politics, he made literature, he made land, he made a bad manner and a great many mistakes. He made a gaunt, foolish wife, two extravagant sons, and four awkward daughters. He made everything, as he could make almost everything, thoroughly pay, thoroughly pay. Now, what I'm going to offer you today is not quite as curly as that. But I just ask you to stay with me until the very last piece falls into place. In an old style, I'd like to begin with things nearest at hand and with things that don't come to us instantly as questions of moment in our constitutional law. So I'd like to begin with the actor Tim Robbins, who professed himself as wounded, deeply wounded, when he was disinvited from a 50th anniversary showing of Bull Durham at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and disinvited because of his opposition to the war in Iraq. The Baseball Hall of Fame, of course, is one of those private associations so thickly populating the American landscape. And like many other associations, it is sought to bring people together on matters of common interest by concentrating on the things they share and filtering out the things that divide them. 
And so without implying anything derisory about politics, many of these associations seek to avoid taking political stances or sounding arguments on either side of our controversies. But Robbins recoiled here, stung by this judgment. And with the imagination of the artist, he found in this small decision something truly portentous. It was part of the repression of dissent under Bush and Ashcroft. But there had been no agent of the law silencing Robbins, threatening him with penalties for speaking or preventing him from proclaiming his views in some other place or some other venue at some other time. And yet Robinson thought he detected in this shunning of his views nothing less than a violation of the First Amendment. He found the means of conveying his opinion on this matter in his play in New York called Embedded, from what I gather a rather savage indictment of the Bush administration. And in the midst of that indictment, he found a place for his own mistreatment at the hands of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And so an announcement offered gravely. At the beginning of the play, it was said, this is an age where an institution's First Amendment rights supersede an individual's. Apparently, the surprise came with a certain jolt for him that organizations, private associations, like the Baseball Hall of Fame, also bore rights under the First Amendment. The members had a certain claim to freedom of association, which entailed the freedom to preserve the character of the commitments that bring them together. A rejoinder of this kind, made to Robbins, would involve an appeal to principles long settled, but often forgotten and obscured, and yet quite firmly anchored, quite axiomatic, we might say, in the first principles of the constitutional order. The leaders of the Baseball Hall of Fame may not recall, but the argument made on their side had been made in a famous case in the 1930s, the case of the Associated Press versus the National Labor Relations Board. But the argument was made in a dissenting opinion by Justice George Sutherland, and the case was part of that famous package of cases, the Labor Board cases, which marked the turning of the Supreme Court from its resistance to the New Deal. This was 1937, and the court was now upholding the reach of the federal government under the implausible device of the Commerce Clause. And it was compelling private employers to recognize and deal with labor unions and compelling it workers to put themselves under the governance of unions. Justice Sutherland's uh, argument in the case of the Associated Press was an argument cast in terms of freedom of association. It involved the freedom of a newspaper, anti-union in its political credo, not to be forced to accept as part of its editorial staff people who are militantly pro-union. My own surmise is that uh, Sutherland's opinion receded from memory because it was lumped together with many other arguments set down by the judges who resisted the New Deal even though those judges were often liberal judges, like Brandeis and Cardozo, the opinions receded from memory because they were filed by historians and professors of law under the rubric of dissenting opinions resisting the New Deal, arguments that were thought to be discredited when the court upheld the New Deal. 
The implication, of course, is that those arguments, losing politically, were also intellectually discredited and refuted. And yet, as I've sought to argue in other places, that was not the case. To a surprising extent, much of the opposition to the New Deal actually held that we live today for the most part in our daily lives in a cast of law that was preserved to us mainly by George Sutherland and his colleagues, and that we'd be quite startled if some of these things were suddenly changed for us. I found in the papers of um, um, Senator Bora from Idaho this case of um, Jacob Magid in Jersey City who was being sentenced to three months in jail was fined $100 of $100 of 1934 money. His wife and four daughters had to take over the, the business. And what was the offense? Knowingly, deliberately, he had pressed a suit for his customer for 35 cents instead of the 40 cents mandated by the National Recovery Act. That stuff was put away. And when it put, was put away, it did not come back. And when people talk about the new day, they filter out the parts that the courts put away in that way. But we see today that arguments deeply compelling seem to have lost their currency or fallen out of our inventory of arguments familiar and understandable, readily usable, or fallen, or because the cases containing these arguments have had their meaning stamped as they've been placed by historians under one political rubric rather than another. They may be classified as decisions of a conservative court at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, casting protections around business, or the court in the New Deal seeking to resist in the name of, the na of natural law sensible regulations of the economy. My argument here is that far more has been lost than the understanding of political economy as we've fallen into the groove of labeling and caricaturing these cases for what seems to come along with the labeling is a tendency actually to stop reading the cases. And my pitch here is a fairly simple one. A plea to read these cases anew, past the labels and the caricatures, simply to read them for the reasoning they contain, reasoning that we may often find surprisingly new because it's been filtered from us for so many years. So instead of seeing the judges governed by the spirit of the times and the historical trend, and their decisions explained by one theory or another of his, this, the historical epic, we may see judges engaged, rather, across the generations in an ongoing conversation as they deliberate about those substantive principles of justice and the meaning, then, of a regime of law. Now, in making this argument, it could be useful to take some of those cases and translate them into terms or conditions different from the conditions in which they had been presented at the time. And so in recalling Sutherland's argument or the problem that kicked in for Tim Robbins, let's imagine that we had a journal of the National Organization of Women, a journal that is emphatically and militantly pro-choice on abortion. We take it as a given, if we have, for example, an editor comparable to the situation in the AP case, who undergoes a, con a conversion and becomes militantly pro-life and anti-abortion, we take it as a given that the leaders of now would ask her to desist 
or even to leave the journal, since her sentiments were now quite out of sympathy with the principles of NOW and their journal. Let's suppose that in the vein of Tim Robbins, the editor argued that she was being fired, suffering a punishment because of the political opinions that she held, that in firing her, the organization was actually impairing her First Amendment rights. One of the signal virtues or illuminations in the rejoinder that comes into play here, of course, is that it reminds us that private associations cannot violate the First Amendment. Constitutional protections are protections against the powers of the government operating through the force of law. If the editor is fired from her post in the pro-choice journal, she's not barred from speaking or publishing her sentiments in other venues or finding a comparable position in editing and writing in a pro-life journal. To be blocked from publishing or working in one journal is not the same, after all, as being barred by law from publishing those sentiments anywhere, in any setting, in any public forum. To state the matter from the other side, though, the axioms may accumulate in this way. If people have a legitimate interest, not an interest say, in contract murder, a legitimate interest, they should be free to press that interest in the political arena. They should be free then to seek allies who share those ends. They may form an association to promote those ends. And the freedom to associate must then imply the freedom to preserve the integrity of the association, to assure that the association is indeed committed to the purposes that brought the members together in the first place. And so the irony that blew up in the face of Tim Robbins was this. If the law sought to protect Robbins' freedom to make his argument, even in a private setting, the law may do that only by impairing the right of people in that association to preserve an association committed to its ends and a right to be compelled, not to be compelled to endorse ends that they do not share. Some friends of mine on Capitol Hill have been concerned about the dramatic political imbalance on our leading campuses with, with only a handful of Republicans and conservatives on the faculties. There was some talk of late about an academic bill of rights or a willingness to use the powers of the federal government to seek some way of opening the universities to political and moral perspectives now blocked out. That proposal may have a sharper edge when it comes to public universities funded with public monies. But on the main lines of defining the problem, the division between the public and the private must have an enduring constitutional significance. As a private entity, my own college, Amherst, could insist that everyone speak Latin or hop around on one leg on, on the campus. Um, the requirements may be odd, but no one is forced to go to Amherst College or to Princeton. Amherst could, in fact, that it, def it decides could find that speech critical of gay rights is utterly unacceptable on the campus. Um, or if there is a freedom to be Catholic, there must be a right to preserve the integrity of Catholic teaching. Amherst College would be quite as free to be sharp in its definition if it wished to be a politically sectarian place, but you know, it may have be free to do that. But sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and so this vexing matter of the colleges, I'll, I'll 
which bedevils my own days, I'll just leave aside for, for another day. Uh, I'd simply state again that George Sutherland's dissenting opinion in that lost cause of 1937 is the opinion that explains far more persuasively than anything else the axioms that protect that pro-choice journal and the private liberal college. Now, if I had the time here, I would make use of the same device. I would cast in contemporary terms the holdings and some of those other old cases, arguments from the time of the New Deal, arguments now thought to be discredited, but the arguments that even liberals seem to be backing into in our own day when the apt case comes up. I wish I had the time here to deal with our old friend, Justice Peckham, Rufus Peckham, of whom Holmes used to say that his major premise was, God damn it. <laughs> and he extrapolated, he extrapolated from there. And as the social scientists would say, it's rather remarkable that it could take in about 85% of the variance. That, that one premise, a uh, bunch of rent seekers out oh, trying to use the law. But I'll reserve that for another time. Um, with the press of time, I'd approach the problem from a rather different angle. I would go back to another decision that has been caricatured and regarded as deeply discredited. A closer reading of that decision would yield some surprises, I think. Um, one thing that should not surprise us is that judges, writing carefully, will try to frame more precisely the judgment they are reaching in the case at hand so that the holding doesn't seem to flow over carelessly into other areas and things they never meant to reach or to say. With that care, they usually try to show how the judgment they reached in the current case could be reconciled with the judgments they handed down in the past. And the, the point of that discipline is the point of showing that the judges hold themselves obliged to respect that ruling even when it cuts another way. They're not simply engaging in the arbitrary assertion of their own will. Now, let, let me just take an example of kind of writing of this kind. As the judges show what they are not abandoning or overturning in the, the decision, I'll draw lines of this kind, as I say, from one notable decision. And it could be an interesting puzzle uh, for those of you who've studied constitutional law. If I assembled these points just put out these fragments of reasoning. Could you guess the decision which was being built and the case that was emerged that you've come to know? How quickly could you identify the case? Or the real test of the door prize is, could you guess the case more quickly than Keith gets it? All right. Because <laughs> Keith will get it. Anyway. So let me just try this out. I really put you on the spot, I'm afraid. But you, 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 piece of cake for you. Um, let's take to some fragments. The jurist, writing for his colleagues, said it was a clear violation of the 14th Amendment, an abridgment of denial and a denial of equality under the Constitution when West Virginia limited the membership on juries to white male persons 21 years of age, and citizens of the state. Item. He notes that in Louisiana, 
that Louisiana had, that along Louisiana had provided that all persons traveling in that state upon vessels engaged in the carrying of persons should have equal rights and privileges. This is along Louisiana. Equal rights and privileges of these conveyances and suffered no discrimination based on color or race. That provision, said the judge, posed no constitutional problem. It was wholly within the power of the state to forbid that racial discrimination among passengers. Third, he notes that where the laws of the state or the charter of a private company provided that no person shall be excluded from cars on a railway on account of color, the law was not respected when passengers of different races were compelled to travel in different cars assigned exclusively to people of different, the same color. Nothing in the Constitution barred the legislature from passing laws of that kind mandating the equal treatment of the races and from insisting on the exacting enforcement of that commitment. Now, if I stopped here, would I have given you enough clues to identify the case? It was Plessy versus Ferguson. It was the case that has been typed over the years as the case that validated separate but equal of racial segregation in the railways. The case has become infamous for that line. Uh, it was the case explicitly overruled in Brown versus Board of Education, but the phrase separate but equal did not spring from anything in the reasoning of the judges. The question before the court, as Justice Brown noted, was whether this kind of separation accorded with the kinds of separations that legislatures, legislators and judges found reasonable when set against the established usages, customs, and traditions of the people and with a view to the promotion of the public peace and good order. As Brown showed, he and his colleagues were quite prepared to enforce policies that mandated a stringent equality of treatment on the basis of race, policies that forbade in no uncertain terms any discriminatory treatment or separation of the races. With that sense of the matter, Brown made it clear that the court would not countenance any schemes suggested as hypotheticals in which a legislature could mandate that colored people walk on different parts of the street or that white men's houses be painted white and colored men's houses black. The scheme was utterly untenable, as Brown wrote. It marked a clear design to denigrate in an utterly gratuitous way, with no connection to any reasonable, defensible purpose of the law. Well, then why was it reasonable to separate the races in railway cars under the current law? Well, it's worth being clear that the judges were not looking first to their own sentiments on this matter. The question, as they understood it, was, just what degree of discretion lay in the judgment of a legislator as the legislators judged? Just what was fitting or reasonable? Again, the judges thought it quite reasonable for the legislature to insist that there be no discrimination at all. Now, might it be just as reasonable to mandate separation? That question would be measured, as Brown said, um, not by consulting feelings or 
sentiments of the judges, but by considering what was regarded according to the, as reasonable, according to the established usages, customs, and tradition. And as Brown and his colleagues made clear, in an interesting turn, it would not suffice as an answer to this question to cite the established usages, customs, and traditions in the South, in the enclaves showing a lingering, deep racial prejudice. The judges would also consider, in estimating the question, what was regarded as reasonable by judges and legislatures in the North and by the men who actually framed the 14th Amendment. As the judges canvassed the precedents, they found a host of decisions throughout the country that sustained as reasonable and legitimate the separation of the, rail, of, of the races in public railways. They found those judgments in courts in Illinois, Michigan, Pennsylvania, as well as in the border states of the South. They found in one signal case, of course, on the separation of children in the public schools, uh, public schools in Massachusetts, that famous case of Roberts versus City of Boston, written by that preeminent anti-slavery jurist, Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, the father-in-law of Herman Melville. And as Shaw judged this matter, he thought the decision of the, the city council in Boston to provide for that separation of the races was no meaner, no less legitimate than the judgment of the same body that was reasonable to separate children in the schools on the basis of sex or on grounds of age and ability. That decision had come before the Civil War, but it couldn't have gone unnoticed by the judges that the same judgment would be seconded by the same men in Congress who had passed the 14th Amendment. The Congress that passed the 14th Amendment had a plenary authority over the schools in the District of Columbia. And as John Noonan, a scholar and federal judge, pointed out, it was hard to credit the notion that the same men who passed the 14th Amendment thought that the logic of that amendment barred the segregation of children in the schools in the states when they didn't think that it barred the segregation of children within the District of Columbia thoroughly, fully under the control of Congress. Okay. And yet even more than that, the judges in 1896 were close enough to the experience to know that Lyman Trumbull, who had managed the 14th Amendment on the floor of the Senate, had assured his colleagues up and down that nothing in the logic of the 14th Amendment could possibly invalidate those laws on miscegenation in the states that barred marriage across racial lines. And as everyone knew at the time, there wasn't the ghost of a chance that the 14th Amendment would have passed had Trumbull not offered those assurances on the laws of miscegenation. And so, again, how did this matter look to judges, those judges in 1896 weighing the question and looking beyond their own sentiments, once again, for guidance? It had to be clear to them that in the judgment of the most liberal statesmen of the time, in the most liberal states, the 14th Amendment did not forbid legislatures from providing for the separation of the races in marriage, in public schools, and in public conveyances. That's all. 
Now, unless the judges were able to come up with some compelling principle appealing to a deeper logic, the limited question before the judges rather settled itself. This might not be the judgments that accorded with the sentiments of the judges, but they could, the judges could not say in any obvious canvassing of the legal judgments at the time that the Constitution forbade the judgment made in this instance by the legislature of Louisiana. Even the judgment of the framers of the 14th Amendment could not have been brought to that argument. This. Of course, some of us think that there was in Plessy versus Ferguson an appeal precisely to that deeper logic in that famous stirring dissent by the first Justice Harlan. That was the opinion in which Harlan declared that the Constitution was colorblind. There is no caste here. And as Harlan argued in those lines that, that still resonate, in the view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. Okay. But as, sterling as stirring as Harlan's opinion was, it was missing something at the root. Harlan was quite emphatic on the point that race was inadmissible as the ground for creating tiers of rights among citizens. But was race equally inadmissible in creating rights of tiers, rights among, and tiers among persons as in determining which class of persons would have access to the rights of citizenship. In the sweep of his opinion and the design of his argument, Harlan remarked that there is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are, with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. He was referring, of course, to whom? Chinese. The Chinese. And you take a look at these cases. There's no case in which the court treated um, blacks illiberally, in which Harlan was not in dissent. There's no case in which they treated the Chinese illiberally, in which he was not with the majority. And his rhetorical point was this. Even a Chinaman, for God's sakes, can ride in the same passenger coach with white citizens, while citizens of the black race in Louisiana, many of whom risked their lives for the preservation of the Union, who are entitled to participate in the political control of the state, may be regarded as unfitted as a class for the company of white people. Harlan's sentiments on blacks and race, we could say, were rightly animated. But it's arguable at the same time that he never really provided the explanation in principle of why it was wrong to draw moral inferences of, of people on the basis of race, and on the basis of race then conclude that people deserved either rewards or disabilities. The want of that argument may explain why Harlan's dissent offered no particular guidance when the judges in the 1940s and the 50s were searching for some way of explaining where the segregation on the basis of race was not only wrong in relation to this particular case, 
but whether there was something in principle wrong with these discriminations based on race. And of course, if we say it's in principle wrong, that kicks in, as Larry Stratton and others have pointed out, to the recent controversies over affirmative action. Okay. Looking back to the Brown case, the judges were often befuddled by the question of whether the wrong here was really contingent upon its effects from one case to another or was, was in principle wrong. Was it wrong to separate children on the basis of, of race in schools because we might impair the performance of the child in the schools? But if we separated the children on the basis of race and the reading scores went up, would the segregation have ceased to be wrong? Or would we say that there was something in principle wrong with discriminations based on race, a wrong that would not be effaced if the segregation worked to deliver benefits to black people? My own judgment, as some here know, is that the wrong of racial discrimination was indeed a wrong in principle, and it was rooted in the very logic of law and moral judgment. Now, I, for those who have read me on this, I forbear laying out the extended case, but I offer this compressed account as one alternative construction that could have been offered here all along. I've argued that behind this, the will or the passion to discriminate on the base of race is a species of determinism, the notion that race exerts a kind of deterministic control over the character and conduct of persons, so that if we simply know the race of any person, we can draw some reasonable inferences as to whether this is a good or bad person, somebody who would improve the neighborhood or degrade it. Right? Um, in short, we would have the clearest ground for assigning benefits and disabilities to people on the base of race. But if this sense of things were true, then none of us could plausibly bear responsibility for his own acts. For each of us would be determined in his conduct by his race. It might be said in this respect that the willingness to discriminate on the base of race denies that moral autonomy or freedom that is the very premise of our standing as moral agents. If we were not in control of our acts, we would never deserve punishment at the hands of the law, neither would we ever deserve praise for anything we did. It's an axiom of the law and indeed of moral judgment that we may not hold people blameworthy or responsible for acts they were powerless to affect. And so in all strictness, it could be said here that if discrimination on the basis were not wrong, then literally nothing, nothing could ever be wrong for there be no plausible standards of right and wrong to which persons may be held accountable. The whole language of moral judgment would be stripped of its meaning. Okay. The judges over many years were reaching out for something of this kind. God, I remember an aside, Bill Hasty was part of the NAACP's team. Judge Hasty was a trustee of Amherst. He told the story of arguing one of the cases in the 1940s and Wiley Rutledge leaned in and said, ah, oh, but Mr. Hasty, wouldn't you say that racial discrimination, segregation is wrong in principle? He said, well, Your Honor, that's not the argument we want to make today. They were arguing it very narrowly. And he leaned in again, but Mr. Hasty, wouldn't you say it's in principle wrong? And then Bill Hasty said, I gave him 12 minutes of pure bullshit so that he'd never ask me that question again. Because that's not how we were casting the argument. The judges were reaching for something of this kind, and yet they never did break out of the scheme of identifying the wrong in any case as contingent. 
contingent, that is, on the injuries that could be produced, say, in schools or the assignment of jobs. I recall a venerable professor of law at the University of Chicago in the 1960s asking, well, how did the judges make their transition from racial segregation in schools to swimming pools? Are you contending that if somebody can't swim, he's, his learning is going to be impaired? Um, the wrong of segregation in schools um, could not be confined simply to the segregation of schools. What I've argued over the years is that the judges here kept confusing principles with the instances in which those principles could be manifested. There may be racial discrimination and access to tennis courts, to swimming pools, to copying machines, but what we should grasp is that we have the same principle and that a principle could be manifested in a numberless multitude of instances, if we know the principle by which that ball rolls down the inclined plane, varying by the angle of inclination, we don't have to ask if it's a blue plane or a yellow plane, or a plastic ball or a steel ball. We understand that the principle can be manifested in a numberless kind of instant, a numberless variety of instances. Okay. We would not need a separate right to play tennis or a constitutional right to use the Xerox machine. Right? And yet that confusion persisted among our jurists. There is probably no more dramatic case un in, under this head than the case that provides my final case in point and carries me through to the summation of my argument. And the case that stands out here so tellingly in my mind, this isn't very elegant, I'm sorry. One day, the Madison program will have to buy glasses. Where <laughs> uh, put that on the budget. There's probably no more dramatic case that stands out here so tellingly as um, Loving versus Virginia in 1967, when the Supreme Court confronted a case arising from the old laws of miscegenation in the states. And in this instance, it was a law in Virginia that barred marriage across racial lines. And when the case reached the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Warren said in opening the case, a remarkable line, um, he said, this case presents a constitutional question never addressed by this court. Really? A case never addressed? The court never addressed yet a case on racial discrimination? Laws, laws that, that, that impose discrimination? Or a case on marriage? I raised the question once of what the judges might have done if the case involved a law in Florida that barred business partnerships across racial lines and it involved two partners, a black man and a white man, who both decided to buy a delicatessen. And we could call the case Zabars versus Virginia. Would the judges have said, we've never confronted a case of this kind? We've never seen it. And would what came out of it be the articulation of a right to own a delicatessen? Well, as I've had the occasion to argue, the case had no more to do with a, quote, right to marry. The judges could have dealt with that case without saying a word about marriage. Okay? 
And as they recognized, marriage can be, even though there's a right to marry, marriage can be restricted for many reasons of rage, of of age and, and affinity and so on. The drift of the judges into new confusions about marriage was a sign of the fact that, once again, they had not been clear on the principle of the case. For if they had, they would have recognized that the case, I guess, it could have been resolved without saying anything about marriage, just as the case of the partners in business could have been decided without saying anything about the right to own a delicatessen. The case would have been resolved simply on the grounds that we had merely another instance of racial discrimination, something in principle wrong under all conditions or circumstances. But when we are alerted to the problem in this way, it becomes revealing, I would suggest. When we ask, well, what did the judges finally say about racial discrimination? Wherein was its wrongness? In dealing with that question decisive to the case, Chief Justice Warren stated the matter in this way, and in a world properly constituted, these lines should set off all the alarm bells. And he said, there could be no question that Virginia's miscegenation statutes rested solely upon distinctions according to race. He said, "Um, over the years, this court has consistently repudiated distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry as being odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. The Chief Justice stated as his leading point that this court has consistently repudiated those distinctions based on race. That is, he does not explain the grounds of its wrongness. He merely reports that he and his colleagues have rejected those discriminations in a line of cases. But clearly, the court had not consistently repudiated those racial distinctions. The court had upheld those distinctions, after all, in Plessy versus Ferguson. And the judges had, by and large, sustained those distinctions until a slight turn beginning in the 1930s. And so what Warren really meant was that the judges over the preceding 20 or 30 years had rejected those discriminations based on race. So in a rough estimate, we're talking about a cohort of 29 judges sitting on the Supreme Court That was quite different from saying that discrimination was wrong, categorically wrong, under all conditions because of a principle anchored in the very logic of law. Warren notes that only two judges in all this time had ever described the wrong in those terms as something in principle or categorically wrong. The lawyers for Virginia argued that the law in Virginia did not violate the equal protection of the Constitution because it bore equally on both races. It barred white people from marrying black people, and it barred black people from marrying white people. And the punishments were were meted outward to partners of all races. The state cited here a case from the Supreme Court in the 1880s dealing with the punishment of adultery and fornication in Alabama. The law had inflicted penalties far more severe on couples of mixed races. But the court sustained that judgment because, after all, it applied equally to both races. 
when you punish the mixed couple of mixed race, you punish the white member of the, of the couple as well as the black member of the couple. But there's a certain sleight of hand here on the part of Chief Justice Warren that the law passed constitutional muster because it barred whites from marrying blacks as it barred blacks from marrying whites. The judge treated, the just, Chief Justice treated that argument as the argument of Virginia. And so it was. But what he neglected to say was that it was also the argument of the men who drafted and passed the 14th Amendment. It was Lyman Trumbull's argument in explaining why the 14th Amendment would not imperil those laws on miscegenation in the separate states. As I remarked earlier, it was widely understood at the time that the 14th Amendment had no chance of passing if he could not have given those assurances uh, to his colleagues. But when we put that into place, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to suggest, and I'll I'll sum it up here, the depth of the problem reveals itself more clearly and dramatically as the moral problem it is. Consider now the problem arranged in these strands of judgment that were available to the court. The Chief Justice evidently thought that he was articulating something novel as a constitutional right, a right to marry not restricted by race. Where could he look for this constitutional right that he would find embedded in the Constitution? He could not find it in the text of the Constitution itself, for one thing. Well, lacking any foundation in the text, it's customary to look to the understanding of the men who framed the law. As Lincoln used to say, the intention of the lawgiver is the law. But the evidence there was massively against the court, for the understanding of the legislature was indisputably clear and quite as indisputably it was at odds with the conclusion that the court was now drawing from the 14th Amendment. But these points of no small importance do not close the problem. Another path of exposition begins with the recognition that, of course, none of us can realistically claim to know all of the implications that spring from his own principles. The life of moral judgment is a life in which we're persistently open to discovering implications of our principles that have gone hitherto unforeseen. From this perspective, it's hardly an egregious fault in Lyman Trumbull and his colleagues that they could not see all of the implications that sprang from the principles that they were articulating. And if Trumbull and his colleagues had been clear about their own principles, they might have recognized that the same principles that enjoined us to draw no moral inferences on the basis of race about people would also enjoin us not to infer that a person of a different race would be bitter, would be, would be utterly unsuitable, unfitting in character as a partner in marriage. With a bit of additional argument, they might have been led to see this point, that some couples may marry, some couples not. Some couples, those who are not, were composed of men and women of different races, and the decision would pivot entirely on the race of the couples. If the 14th Amendment bars us from conditioning any rights under the laws on the basis of the race of the person, then surely the same principle would cover this instance of according and restricting rights on the basis of race. But whether Trumbull understood the reach of the principle or not, 
we can be grateful for the achievement that he and his colleagues wrought in planting the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. We can be grateful for what they did and trust they would not see any disrespect on our own part if we sought to make this case earnestly, that their own principle understood in its core logic would justify a conclusion quite different from the one they had formed in their own day about the legitimacy of barring by law the freedom to marry across racial lines. Words of that kind could have been set down, I, I, I argue, could have been set down by the judges that day in Loving versus Virginia, and they would have been quite in order and fully as apt as the words set down by Warren, which tended to move artfully around the main question. But when we understand the path that never came into sight for the judges, we may see more starkly the choice they made. And it comes out this way. The judges realize that they cannot cite on their side the text of the Constitution, nor can they find support in the intentions of the people who framed that part of the Constitution. At that point, they had the possibility of making a case in principle, which emerged from the logic of the 14th Amendment and sought to show in their reasoning that they were drawing from the deep principle of the 14th Amendment. But instead of making that move, they did something notably different. They said that these judgments reached by statesmen and jurists of the past were not in accord any longer with the judgments reached by 29 men who had rendered judgments in the name of the court over the past 30 years. When the matter is finally posed in this way, we may earnestly ask, why should the judgment of those 29, if it's simply the numbers, why should they be given precedence over, A, the text of the Constitution, the understanding of the framers of the 14th Amendment, or C, the understanding of all those congressmen who voted for the amendment and the legislators who voted to ratify it? Okay? If we removed from the problem the principle that explained the wrongness, finally, of racial discrimination, if we put that matter wholly out of the picture, on what conceivable ground could we say that this bunch of 29 judges should rightly be given an authority that transcends all of the rest? It can't be anything magical in the number 29. Nor could it be that these were the more recent judges pronouncing on the most recent cases because the whole logic of a constitution is that the constitution coming earlier must override legislation coming later. But wanting any other explanation, the possibility must hover that the only ground for this assertion of the authority of this band of 29 is that the judges on the scene now have indeed the power to make the decision. But when stripped in that way and cleared of legal language, this claim of the judges seemed to reduce to the claim brought forth so tellingly by Rousseau that power, and rejected by Rousseau, that power itself is the source of its own justification. In the case of Brown versus Board, the court could have taken the occasion to explain the principle, do something similar to what I've set up here. 
But once again, the right decision was made, we think, but on grounds that were even more curious and possibly disturbing than the reasoning in the case of marriage. Instead of making the appeal to the deep principle behind the 14th Amendment, the court appealed, as people often noted, to the findings of social science, the children in Kenneth Clark studies, that children in more segregated schools were more likely to reject their blackness and fall into an acceptance of themselves as members of a lower caste. But the embarrassment of this argument, brought out by several commentators, was that the social science cited by the court pointed in a direction quite opposite from the conclusion drawn by the court. In the experiments done by Kenneth Clark, it was the children in the more integrated settings in Massachusetts who are more likely to reject their blackness and evince a sense of hurt in the awareness of their race than the students in the more segregated settings. And so the variation added by the court here might have been even worse than the performance in Loving versus Virginia. The judges could not rely on the text of the Constitution. They could not rely, quite evidently, on the understanding of the framers of the 14th Amendment. They would let the decision rest on social science, and when the social sciences yielded findings quite at op opposite to those of the, the, the conclusions drawn by the judges, the judges would simply pronounce the findings of the social science to be otherwise. Okay? By the time we've laid bare these strands of judgment, it should be clear that whatever else they describe, they don't describe the vocation of jurists concentrating their learning and their wit on explaining those deep principles that finally govern our judgments on the things that are just or unjust, right or wrong, we would find, in short, a description of power, of power without discipline or restraint, power that merely feeds on itself and cites power alone as the ground of its justification. My pitch here again, and I am closing, is that the things I've drawn out from these cases are often at odds with a common or prevalent view of what these cases mean or what they've established in our law. And what I've brought out in these cases often runs counter to the caricatures or the cliches that affix their meaning. Whether those decisions have been condemned as reactionary or praised as progressive, Either way, the reasoning of the judges, read closely, seems to have faded from view when the cases have been folded into some grander historical theory of what the court has done in different epochs or the motives that might have been driving the judges. My old teacher, Leo Strauss, in a lesson now grown familiar, used to encourage us to understand people first as they understood themselves that we first try to understand them and their arguments before we, before we presume to speak of their motives as an alternative to dealing with their arguments. But to understand these judges as they understood themselves is to show the patients first to attend seriously to the reasons they have given and the way they shaped their arguments. I've suggested here that we're more likely to, to avoid a false account if we start with the assumption that seems to run counter to the fashions of our own day, 
instead of explaining the judge by the zeitgeist of the time or looking for his class interests, I suggest that we start with the assumption that the reasons he sought so carefully to explain at the time to his colleagues who were open to be persuaded that those reasons might be as plausible now in persuading the colleagues now on the scene. We are as capable of entering that conversation on those terms as the judges were when they had listened to those arguments at the time and formed their own judgments. But if that's the case, we begin with the understanding, as I say, that we're engaged in an ongoing conversation, a conversation that may take place across the generations. Lincoln famously said in his speech at the, at the Cooper Union that the fathers or the framers understood the problem at the heart of our politics as well as or even better than we understand it today. Lincoln, of course, was speaking of the, the gravest crisis in our history, the crisis of the house divided, running back truly to first things. But my own conviction has taken hold that with, with time that what Lincoln said about the framers and slavery could as well be said about anything else in our current politics. Now, the founders did not anticipate the problem of research on embryonic stem cells or the complications wrought by emails and computers. But they understood that any device, any act, anything we could name could be directed to a wrongful purpose. The founders understood that people could seek to relieve their own conditions or dissolve their own predicaments at the expense of others or even by sacrificing the lives of innocent people they did not know. The very notion of a constitution implies that one finds a certain wisdom in being ruled by an earlier generation of statesmen with an uncommon knack of tracing their judgments back to first principles. That means, in effect, that in the most practical way, we indicate that we would rather take our chances that Alexander Hamilton and James Madison got it right even when it means restraining the decisions made by Ruth Ginsburg or David Souter, even by Bill Frist and Harry Reid. And yet none of that makes sense unless we suppose that there is indeed a political truth or a wisdom about the way we live that holds true across the epics, that it's indeed possible to have a conversation across the generations, about the terms of principle on which we're governed. The circumstances or the instances may have altered, but the principles, the principles remain the same. G.K. Chesterton once remarked that education has the purpose or the benefit of making young people old. Or to put it another way, he said, it delivers young people from the servitude of being children of their own age. In that vein, we might say once again, and say here finally, that we would show a better wisdom if we began at least by taking seriously the possibility that those judges and statesmen of an earlier time, even those judges who've been sort of thrust aside on the losing side of these cases, as those jurists and judges of an earlier time may have understood our current situation 
as well as or better than we understand it today. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Arcus. Uh, we have time for questions. It's a mass and program tradition to take question, the first questions from any students who might have them before opening it up to the more general audience. Uh, so let me provide the first opportunity then for any students in the audience who might have, might have questions for Professor Arcus. Yes. James Fribbling. Uh, the speech was nearing castorite length, I'm afraid, already. Um, let me, um, gee, somebody once said, is there any principle to which all of this reduces? I said, well, never by retail. Uh, be one. Um, let, me, l l but let, me, let me, let me put the, the um, let, me, let me just extract some of the things after all. Um, even in this age of animal liberation, as you've heard me say, we don't sign labor contracts with dogs or horses or seek the informed consent of our household pets before we authorize surgery on them, but we continue to think that beings who can give and understand reasons deserve to be ruled with a rendering of reasons in a regime that elicits their consent. And when you put those things in place, I think you have the rudiments of this understanding um, that um, anyone who denies that proposition, as Lincoln said, as um, Jefferson said, must assume that the mass of mankind were born with saddles on their backs and that a privileged few were born with spurs on ready to ride them. And so, of course, the argument was originally cast that no man was by nature the rule of other men in the way that God was the, by nature the ruler of men and men were by nature the rulers of dogs and horses. And then, of course, the famous encounter with Lincoln and Douglas, you remember, Douglas says, if it comes down to a dispute between the white man and the black man, I am decisively on the side of the white man. But if it ever came down to a dispute between the black man and the crocodile, I'm on the side of the black man. And Lincoln, who never had the advantages of uh, analogies tests, uh, said, what Douglas is telling you is that the, black, that the crocodile is to the black man as the black man is to the white man. And the only way he can remove black people from the class of rights-bearing beings is to reduce black people to the things that were subhuman. Now, those things provide probably the anchor of this regime and the points we keep, we keep getting round, getting, always keep getting round to. And of course, James Wilson and the others would articulate just what we expect of that ordinary biped who conjugates verbs, the one who says to us, really, does it say anything about the laws of Massachusetts or New Jersey about stealing dentures, squash rackets? And we say, no, we expect, you to, we expect you to know what? We expect you to know, first grasp what a theft is, and then expect you to know that if you understand the principle of theft, we expect you to know that that principle is virtually indifferent to the variety of instances that may come under it, which is say we expect ordinary people to know what um, Chief Justice Warren professed not to know that day in Loving versus Virginia. 
that's where I would sketch in. Is there something else that you wanted to draw me out on for another two hours? Yeah, yeah. And let me take another question. Yeah, Jim. Uh-oh, I see what's coming. Okay. I was wondering what you think about judges who have been seen in Massachusetts and in New York and I think in California as well, who rule that the uh, restrictions on marriage that prohibit gay marriage are not based on prejudice. What would you say then to perhaps a more extreme view of this maybe coming in the future of a judge Sure. Okay, I know there are going to be other questions. Um, so let, let me try to, you know, I used to say, in circumstances of this kind, I may have to compress these remarks hebraically by omitting the vowels. Um, um, what you're citing is exactly what, um, what Robbie and I were arguing when we were doing the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, and, and uh, we're saying if you, if you move out of this framework in which marriage is directed to begetting, um, what is it that confines this relation to two? What, what, what do you do with the people who come in to say that, that our love is woven together in a larger ensemble of three or four? The poly, and since we made that argument, the polyamorous have now come on the scene, and we have a new book done by this woman at the uh, professor at the Law School of Chicago arguing that polyamory is indeed the rightful position, that uh, we should let people marry as many and as much of larger the sum ensemble as they wish. Now, give you just to take the core of the matter and promise you to unfold the rest of it later. What I've argued as we've I've been involved in this argument in, in Massachusetts and as we've been faced and in other places, that the curious thing it, um, uh, we have Mike Rosen, who's just done an extended piece critical of my position, uh, but uh, what, what, we've, what we've argued is the curious thing that, that um, the gay activists have argued that mere generalizations are not enough. Uh, not everyone who marries is capable of having children. And of course, there are many uh, heterosexual families who are quite dysfunctional, and you couldn't say on, that, that, that a gay or lesbian couple could not uh, work, even though the, the evidence would suggest that that uh, heterosexual families do it better. But I think what I've argued is they have it right, quite right, when they insist that we cannot make these decisions based merely on these generalizations. The fact that not all gay or lesbian uh, may want marriage does not give you the ground of denying marriage to those who do. But at the same, but what's, notice this. When they say that not all marriages will bring forth children, what they're saying to us is we are establishing as the ground of an argument the most demanding standard you can put in place. We are demanding nothing less than a categorical proposition before you start making laws, a, a proposition that answers to the question, is it necessarily true that all couples will beget children? I say that's exactly the right form of the argument. It's a very demanding standard. But once you put that into place, I think a kind of political jujitsu comes into order. That argument, those terms become the sources of very difficult arguments 
that the advocates of same-sex marriage I don't think have been able to deal with, and they might be, if we grant this, um, why, not, why, not, why not bring back polygamy or the polyamorous couple? If, as the um, court of Massachusetts says, we may not restrict this relation to relations of begetting, it's enough that they may be adult, people may be adult and intimate, well, then what about the father and his daughter or the father and his son? If, if begetting and sex have nothing to do with it, then, as um, a couple of people argued, why isn't this arrangement not available to two sisters, two widows, two widowers who are simply trying to share Social Security benefits and deal with Medicaid liens coming out of nursing? And what I find is that the activists on the other side, no, don't want to make have the concept of marriage extend to encompass those experiences. They want the insistence on an erotic relation that's at the core of the definition of the marriage. And if that's the case, you're you're brought back to the original question, uh, then what do we mean by sex in the strictest sense? You ask a long question, and I'll simply have to let us stop there to point out that, as I see it now, if we take the gay activists at at their strongest level in the argument that we've got to have a categorical proposition behind the laws, that will become the source in turn of counter-arguments that as far as I can see right now, they can't really deal with. And I think that would have to be answered. Um, Because if marriage is taken out of this shape to encompass widowers or, or several people, I think it will cease to have that special significance that makes it for so many people such a desirable thing. But there's another question. Yes. Uh, you argued here, and I read that way in Salzburg, that argues that the law should not make distinction on the basis of arbitrary factors as to whether they're considered unsuitable, because to do so would separate law from community. What about the instance of the Today Society, where they make the distinction on the basis of gender, and they separate bathrooms, and I assume you don't agree with Justice Ginsburg and the BMI decision. Well, unless you think that it's that, um, that that gender is not quote as you say, or is, are you using gender in place of sex as part of the new convention? Either way. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure it's either way. Uh, unless unless we understand that the um, that that the difference in sex is in fact not a peripheral matter but in fact quite central to the relation we're talking about. Uh, and many, many black activists are just, just offended by the notion that people would assimilate the argument over same-sex marriage to this matter of, uh, of um, restrictions based on race in marriage. We do, are dealing with men and women. Now, when it comes back to the separate locker yeah, we do have, we don't have separate locker rooms for, we don't have separate teams for blacks and whites, but apparently even many liberal institutions still think it's, it's legitimate to have a women's soccer team and a women's tennis team. Something else is at work. Uh, and it could be that we, what we think here is that um, the differences here are not merely statistical. We don't say men are less likely to have children than women. Uh, we say, no, in fact, uh, that's, that's, not, that's, not a, that's not a matter of a generalization. And if it's not a matter of generalization, uh, I think the, 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 matter, the, the, the argument arises quite plausibly that there is something in our natures, that we are wired 
for certain kinds of attractions. And under those kinds of conditions, it may be a sign of prudence that we don't have men and women undressed, passing commonly before you know, one another. Uh, you may have certain places where people feel sufficiently emancipated to carry it on. I say, well, good luck to them. But, um, um, but, I, but I think those people who are a little reluctant to, to encounter that experience uh, may not be simply labeled as people um, of uh, kind of a, a diminished sensibility, that they still, there's something more rooted in our natures that may explain what that affinity is. It's not merely an accident that things are constituted in that way. So I guess part of the argument, now I've got, again, I mentioned Mike Rawson, who's done, um, Mike Rawson, who's a regular at these things, product of the University of Chicago, my school. Mike has done an impressive, um, who, Mike is not a, a, a sort of a law professor, by but he did a just impressive piece trying to show that there is a sort of people of mixed uh, sexual characteristics as a regular feature and, and raising this kind of question about where the, the, the lines are. And that's a more complicated argument that I may, may have to forego. But again, the main lines of my argument is that, um, another way, if we are talking about who is fitted to be a citizen in a republic, who understands what it, what it means when he's exercising a vote, that he is affirming the rightness of a regime of consent, not only for himself, but for all others, that he would not vote that regime out and vote out the protections that it, it offers. We understand that. We say, ah, how do we identify somebody like that? Color of eyes? No. Height? Weight? No. We understand what things are arbitrary, what features are arbitrary and have no connection to the activity at hand. And so the argument, of course, here is whether, whether Robbie and I have resolved it to your satisfaction or whether we can withstand the challenge that Mike Rosen uh, makes to us, uh, our argument here is that if we can argue that that's not adventitious, that that difference between men and women is, in fact, critical to the definition of what sex, sexuality in the strictest sense means, that, yes, that, that cannot be diminished simply as an arbitrary standard. As the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith once remarked, there may, there, all these nations have not always been with us. There's not always been a Hungary. There may not always be an Italy. But so long as there are human beings, there will be men and women. Right? There's something more enduring in that fact that is not of the same endurance about those things we call nations. I think I've exhausted this audience. Uh, maybe, maybe it's time to do Kant's answer to you. Thank you again, Professor Arcus. And you're welcome to join us and Professor Arcus outside a reception just outside the door. Thank you.